Hi, everybody. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to the Abbott Talks podcast. Over the past few years, the world has come to recognize Abbott as a company dedicated to helping people live happier and healthier lives. In this podcast series, we'll talk with the healthcare leaders, the executives, and the engineers who are working every day to develop new technologies to help people live their best lives. I know you'll enjoy this episode of the Abbott Talks podcast. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Abbott Talks podcast. If you weren't at Device Talks West in October in Santa Clara, well, shame on you. It was a great event, made doubly great by the fact that the opening keynote was Julie Tyler. She is, of course, Senior Vice President of Abbott and Head of Abbott's Vascular Business. We talked about Julie's career, about her unique start into the medical device industry and about how she came to lead Abbott's vascular business. It was a bit of an indirect path, but once she got there, she worked with the teams and helped develop a vision for the future. We'll explore that vision a bit. We'll talk about the process that Abbott's vascular business underwent when she took over and about where it's headed uh, in the future. So I know you'll enjoy this conversation with Julie Tyler. Again, she's Senior Vice president and head of Abbott's vascular business. But before we begin, I'd like to bring in our podcast sponsor, Resonetics. So I'm speaking with Bob Baldino. Bob is the director of strategic projects at Resonetics. Bob, could you take a minute and tell us about Resonetics? Resonetics is a global leader in micromanufacturing for the life science industry. Really, we, we do it all. I mean, from prototyping with our technology in our Lightspeed Lab, all the way to contract manufacturing, and even prototype development from the beginning, from scratch with our Agile team. We can we can do almost anything you need in the life science industry. We'll hear more from Bob Eldino a little later in the podcast. If you need to find out more about Resonetics right now, you can go to its website, resonetics.com. That's R-E-S-O-N-E-T-I-C-S.com. So, we got to meet a couple of weeks at MedTech Vision. I'm glad we had a little kind of warm-up conversation. It was great to see you there. Uh, we always like to start these conversations just learning about the person, about their path into, into medical devices. So, if you could just, what was it, your, your, your career, or your, your educational start was similar to mine. Your career outcome was much different. <laughs> I'd love to understand how you found your way into the medical device industry. Sure. It, I, I took a, um, a, a very different role, a, a route that most people take. So early on, actually in college, I was in television and radio. And in college, I actually was a DJ on oh, no um, a jazz station as well as a blues station. And I was known as Lady Blue Jay Jones. And I gave you blues that you could use. <laughs> and so um, I worked through college, again, on radio and television, and uh, thought that I wanted to be president of, of NBC or CBS one day. So I ended up going to... Um, 
to, to Southern Methodist University and received a degree in broadcast management, where you spend half your time in the business school and half your time in the, in the broadcasting school. During that time, I also spent uh, some time working for companies like Audience Research and Development, where we provided consulting uh, work for uh, local networks to try to increase their ratings. We worked with, you know, people like, let's say, uh, uh, Troy Aikman, who's coming out of football and wanted to, you know, uh, be in media. We provide media training. So I did that in graduate school. And as I was graduating from graduate school, I was being courted from the business side hmm. and I was being courted from the, um, the, the, the media side. And I ended up going into, um, interesting enough, into banking. So I went to, Brock, to, to mortgage banking right out, out, of, out of graduate school. And it took probably 18 months to 24 months to realize that that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah, how did that, what was the, what was, At all. What was the dialogue that went on that led you to do that right out of college? Um, it was a management development program. Okay. So I was wooed by the possibility, which was really good because it's part of my journey. And I think it, it provided a lot of foundation that helps me to this day. Um, but I realized that that wasn't necessarily what I wanted, what I wanted to do. Um, I, I mentioned I went to SMU and so Southern Methodist is, is pretty expensive for graduate school. And so I had ex a student loans to pay off. <laughs> and so, uh, at that point I decided that I didn't necessarily want to go into that route. So I decided, uh, to go into, to, to medical device sales. And at the time, actually I started with uh, pharma and Abbott was recruiting in the Houston med center. And I was young and fearless and actually started as a representative. I always thought that I was going to go back to television and radio. Mm -hmm. And 28 years later, I, I'm not done so. Pharma sales just seems like one of those careers where you're going to get no, told no a hundred times to every yes. Is it like that? And, and yeah, what, what did that sort of build within it's you? It's interesting. I did pharma for uh, early in my career. I think because I was young, fearless, and didn't realize how hard it was, I just took it as a challenge every day. And so the Houston Med Center is a very large med center. And it's one where I had been um, warned that it was very difficult to get in to see physicians. And so I remember um, I would just happen uh, to be next to a physician's car at a certain time or just happen to be by the elevator and just jump in, oh, Dr. So-and-so. And so as a result of that, uh, I would share a lot of my creativity with people within my district or my region. And I was noticed by the, the regional director. And so he hired me or offered me a job as a promotion for uh, a regional training specialist. And so I think the fact that I didn't know any better at the time, that it was pretty hard. I also recognized that I wanted to be someone that was unique from the rest of the pack. So I would go to the medical library and I would research things that were of uh, of interest to physicians. So I didn't necessarily just talk about my products. I talked about my products, but I also would say, and Dr. Tom, last time I was in here, you mentioned to me that you had, you know, an interest in, you know, respiratory disease, specifically in Western Europe. I ran across this article, wow. right? And I, and, and because of that, I started to be viewed as a resource to the, uh, to the physicians. That's great. Yeah. And that, this was obviously pre-Google, pre-internet. You were, you were in a library. You were In a library with books, absolutely. <laughs> and so from there, I was a regional training specialist, ultimately became a, a district manager responsible for a group of maybe 10 to 12 people, uh, moved to Chicago into my first foray into, into marketing, came back out as a regional sales director, area vice president, and ultimately I led a very large commercial organization within pharma of about 3,200 people. And then in 2010, 
I wanted to kind of diversify my experience and moved to the Met Device mm-hmm. side and been in, on Met Device site since then. So what went into, what was the why did you feel the need to diversify? Your, your your business background in the industry? Sure. You were there were a couple of things. You know, I would say the years prior to me making the move, um, you know, we were, we, we saw a lot of change within the pharmaceutical side of the business. Uh, we had a lot of IT, uh, IP challenges. And so as a result of that, I had to restructure and unfortunately downside a thousand people over a three-year period. And I just saw the writing on the wall in terms of where pharma was going, even though I, I enjoyed that job. But I also didn't necessarily want to just be identified as just the pharma lady. Hmm. The other piece that that drove me into Met Device, and I think we share the, I shared this with you before, is unfortunately my daughter was was born with a congenital heart defect. And um, she you know, probably had her first surgery with a pacemaker just shy of her first birthday. Mm. Uh, She had her first defibrillator shy of her fourth birthday, had a stroke at nine, uh, unfortunately passed away at the age of 11. And so I wanted to move to an area within cardiovascular that was more specific to what I was what she was dealing with and I was dealing with as her as her parent. Mm-hmm. And so moving to Met Device was really um, kind of the shift for me where it moved from being a job to more of a of a purpose. How, how do you carry that experience as uh, obviously a mother of a patient, but all your the family, the whole family becomes the patient and and infuse that into your daily work as, as a leader of Abbott? Because it's a really important perspective, I think, that we don't hear often enough, and it's a. It is at Abbott. You know, we have uh, our quality saying is is built as if intended for our family, and so we always think about from a quality perspective, making sure that we produce products that are going to be safe and effective. But I think I have a perspective that goes beyond that. So obviously, as the president of the business, I look at facts and figures, you know, revenue and margin and and share. But I look at it from a different angle. I look at it from a perspective of every share point, every additional revenue point that I'm able to generate, it represents a a, a person Mm -hmm. and it represents a family. And for me, it it changes the dimension and dynamic of what we're doing. And so I, I very much look at unmet needs within the medical space. And so that is especially how I'm looking at our business moving forward. I look at the various markets. I look at what the standard of care is today. And then I say, okay, are there areas where we can improve upon the standard of care or are there areas where there are significant gaps? And that's what drives me and my and my and my approach to my business because I believe that you can marry profitability along with um, something that is 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 more meaningful in a way that it really has an impact on the patients and the communities that we serve. So I think for every product device that we bring to market. Uh, I think of it from a perspective of a mother being able to see her daughter uh, give birth to a baby, their grandbaby, or a father walking his daughter down the, the, the aisle. That's how, that's the lens by which I look at it. Is this really going to be meaningful and helpful for the patient, for the family, for the communities we serve? In addition to, will it help us from a growth and profitability perspective? I don't look at it just from the lens of bringing out a new product that I can sell. I look at it from the perspective of how is it going to enhance the space moving forward. 
All right, we'll take a break from this conversation to bring back our sponsor, Resonetics. Once again, I am speaking with Bob Baldino. He is Director of Strategic Projects at Resonetics. Bob, tell me, how does Resonetics work with medical device companies? So Resonetics works with medical device companies in many ways, uh, from just updates and communication from the operations team on how your production program is doing, or from my expertise, the Lightspeed team communicating engineer to engineer from the medical device company to our engineering team, our Lightspeed team, where we have dedicated engineers and equipment that turn around prototypes based on, it could be a, a sketch, it could be a print, it could be you know just some notes in an email. And what we really are, are, are 10 Lightspeed Labs, 150 engineers plus and growing, how we work together to deliver what a customer needs is we'll take what we know about our technology. We'll talk to the customer either on a phone call or maybe over email and bring some of our design for manufacturing feedback to the table so that we can really make sure that we've identified the best, you know, most manufacturable method to deliver this medical part, but also what works the best for the customer and their application. We'll hear a little more from Bob Baldino of Resonetics a little later in the podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Resonetics and its light speed labs, go to resonetics.com. How do you combine that passion and mission with the objective that you have the to, to build a business and to grow a business? And is it something you, you must actively consciously do? Talk to your, your employees about it. How do you sort of keep the two uh, moving forward side to side? Yeah, that's a good question. So one of the things we do is we we try to paint a picture of the markets, right? Oftentimes when you move into a new role, so I you you evaluate the market, you evaluate the size, the TAM, the growth, uh, where you have greatest opportunity. But I translate that in a way that is is more meaningful for my organization. For example, um, I think about the the peripheral side of my business. So historically, we've been focused on people think about vascular, they think about uh, stents for the heart. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, you have vasculature across the entire body. So one thing people don't recognize is that peripheral arterial disease in the most severe form of that, which is called CLI, chronic limb ischemia, that many of these patients end up having the most severest form of PAD. They end up having amputations. And those amputations, what a lot of people don't recognize, result in very high rates of mortality within anywhere from 12 to 24 months post an amputation. And so instead of just talking about the size of the PAD market. And instead of necessarily just talking about um, the, 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 the current products that are out there today or the lack of products out there today, what I do is I change the conversation for my employees and I back it up and I start with, all right, if you take a look at this disease state, we recognize that over 200 million people worldwide are going to be afflicted by some form of, of peripheral arterial disease. Mm-hmm. 10% of them will have you know, uh, chronic limb ischemia. What does that mean? That a large portion, almost 50% of them have an amputation. And, and then I go even further and, and talk about the mortality rates that are associated with that. And then it is it creates a different conversation about what type of technology we should bring forth, not necessarily just to participate in the PAD market, 
but to prevent amputations that therefore uh, present, uh, uh, you know, prevent high rates of mortality. So if you take a look at our strap plans, it starts with the end in mind. It starts with our mission and our aim is to reduce amputations and therefore reduce mortality and bringing awareness to the fact that many of these patients, uh, their mortality rates are higher than most cancers. And a lot of people don't, are not aware of that. So if you look at, at our business and our various offices, uh, how we put our strap doc together, it really creates a story around the patient, mm -hmm. and that's how you're able to get buy-in from the employees. Well, let's talk about the, the, the moment you took over at Abbott's Vascular Business. Uh, what is the first order of business for someone taking over an existing business to, you obviously want to assess what you have, I'm sure you go in with ideas of your own. But what, 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 do you, what happens day one and week one when you, when you move into that, that chair? So for me, it was a unique journey because I've been with Abbott Vascular since 2010. So I've had um, uh, you know, various roles of increasing responsibility. So I, I knew the business, um, but I, and, and oftentimes when you, when you know the business and you're sitting there kind of waiting for your turn, mm -hmm. you, know, you think, well, if I get there, I'm going to do this. And if I get in that, that position, I'm going to do this. It was interesting... Um, probably six months before I was named as president of the business, I was moved over to another business. I was moved over to diabetes care. Oh, needed me there. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I had always thought I was going to stay with the, 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 the vascular business, but I was asked to move over to diabetes care. And six months into it, I was, you know, I was grinding. I was, you know, really making a difference there. I got a call that my old boss, who I was kind of his right-hand person, he decided to retire. And so they said, Julie, we want you to come back. And I think that was really good. Mm -hmm. I think it, I, I call it a, a palate cleanser because I think it was really good for me to step away from the business that I had been a part of since 2010 because I was able to come back with fresh eyes and with a new perspective. And so I really leaned in to learn the business uh, in a new way, even though I knew it, but mm -hmm. I, I really wanted to make sure that I learned the business in a new way. And so what I did was I took a step back and I said, let me evaluate the business just from a very traditional sense. Get to know the people, get to know the products, make sure you understand the competitive landscape, make sure you understand the market, um, do an assessment of the financials over the last few years. And I also did it not only from an internal perspective, I also did it from an external perspective. So I reached out to clinical customers, economic customers, IDNs, and and the same sorts of assessments that I was doing internally, I would do with external customers just to make sure that I understood. What, so what are you asking? Are you just collecting facts? So initially I was, I was collect. So I did a combination of quantitative as well as quanta, qualitative mm -hmm. uh, uh, of assessment. So one is just, I want to understand the facts, just the facts as they are. All the last few years, you know, what's been our gross margin? What's been our, our, our share? You know, what's been our... Uh, revenue. How much SGNA do we spend? How much uh, percentage of our, our revenue goes back in R and D? So I looked at all of those. I looked at productivity for each one of the functions. How productive are we with R and D, with regulatory, with quality? Um, uh, are, are we aligned with our internal benchmarks? How do we compare against external benchmarks? Mm -hmm. Right. And so if it takes us, you know, five years to get a product uh, through a cycle, uh, how long does it take our competitors? Looking at our reimbursement strategies, how do they? compare to our internal benchmarks? How do they compare external? So just kind of a, uh, just a number of facts. Then I took the time 
to then have qualitative assessments with people within the organization, all the way down the organization. I took the time, I, I spent time at every single one of our plants. So I walked the line with all of the folks within uh, direct labor, you know? And not only did I walk the line, I said, okay, tell me what you're doing. Show me how to do that, mm. right? Uh, tell me where, how we're getting it right. Tell me how we're getting it wrong. So literally from direct labor all the way to the representatives in the field, uh, to people that take care of our environmental health. I spent time just talking to people. And then externally, I went out and I said, okay, doc, tell me what's your impression of our organization? Uh, do our people support you? I, I spoke to folks within the IDNs and GPOs and, and, and said, okay, t talk to me about the competitiveness of our organization. What's our value proposition relative to our competitors? And so what I did was I generated all of this information and then I worked with individuals within a small group of people within our uh, strategy group. And then we triangulated all that data to come up with a really robust uh, SWOT assessment, if you will, mm -hmm. on steroids, right? And then from there, we were able to then identify trends. We're able to identify um, where we're doing really well and why, because it's, it's important to understand the why, where we had some gaps just internal from our internal processes and where we had gaps just in terms of the marketplace and, and, and our pipeline, how we approach our customers. And that was this, the formation of us really starting um, developing our strategy. But before we started the strategy development, we took a series of, of, of workshops and meetings to just make sure that people within the organization understood where we were. And let's debate it and discuss it mm -hmm. because what's, what happened is you had people who had, in, who had been in the organization for so long, unless you take the opportunity to kind of shake things up and provide a perspective of the business that, that they don't have and debate that because because it wasn't that people said, oh, yeah, I agree with you, Julie. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of debate. Like there was like, well, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I agree. And so it was a lot of discussion within the leadership team of the direction of the organization and, and where, sh where we should go. And that ultimately led to a gap assessment of the things that we needed to do quickly, because we did a threat analysis, what are the things that we need to do right now to stabilize certain parts of the business? And then we're able to build a roadmap moving forward of things that we needed to change. I want to talk about those future plans, but so many questions to ask about this. How, how long of a process, how long did this process take? I would say the process of really evaluating the business in a more robust fashion. Uh, there were phases. I would say the first phase was probably 90 days. Okay. Oh, wow. um, Quick. Yeah, that's yeah. that's like the that's the, the, that's the quick, dirty. Yep. Uh, and then the next phase, I would say, was the, the following six months. Okay. But I would say to get a true, true, true assessment of the business probably took anywhere from, you know, 12 to 16 months before I was able to get to a point where I felt like, yep, this is, this is, this is the situation today. And this is our, our, our vision for the organization, our purpose, our strategy, and the key tactics that we need to execute moving forward. How surprised were you at the facts you unveiled and the outcomes of the assessment? Did it jive with what you thought you'd see at the start or were you startled or taken aback by the difference? So some of the, the elements, I, I was not surprised. Yeah. 
Um, but in certain areas, I was. In certain areas, I, I was surprised at some of the things that I was able to uh, to uncover. And, and I won't call out functions, but I would say as I look at cross-functional teams, um, as I look at the health of the business overall, as well as the health in each one of the, the cross-functional teams, I would say that my grades varied mm-hmm. from, you know, anywhere from, you know, it's hard to give A's, you know, I always feel like there's ways to improve, but anyway, anywhere from like a B all the way to like a D minus, quite frankly. And, you know, we had to have frank conversations about that. And as a result of that, you know, we also had to make some, some changes in terms of some of the people that were leading some of those functions at the, t- at the highest level, but also down within the organization. Because, you know, you always give people the opportunity to, to try to become part of the, the direction of the organization moving forward. But it's ultimately up to them mm-hmm. if they want to be, be, become a part of this, this vision. And, you know, at some point you have to say the train's leaving the station. Right. And you want to make sure that you have the folks on that train that are ready, willing, and able to do the job moving forward. Because it, it was, quite frankly, a who moved my cheese moment because we, we had to move the business in a different direction in order for us to generate the performance and the growth that's needed moving forward. And I would say for the vast majority of people, they they understood that and they were willing to put in the work to, for reinvention. And others, that's not necessarily what they wanted to do. They've right. been with the organization for many years and they were like, you know what, I, 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 I'm not capable or willing to make that change. Mm-hmm. And I would think, again, collecting the facts and, and bringing this as we've collected these, this, this clear vision of, or picture of where we are is the difference maker. Because we've all been in organizations that have yes. been taken up or someone new has come in and everyone, here we go. Like yes. the new person needs to X, Y, or Z. You bring up a really good point. I never would go to people and say, this is what I believe and this is what I think. I would always say the data would suggest and the data leads us. And and you invite people in the process to understand the data. Because Mm -hmm. to your point, I don't want to come in and and say everything is wrong and we just need to change it. Um, And I also invited people to be a part of the discovery process as well. So that when we had data, you know, let's wrestle with it. Let's make sure that we're comfortable with it. You know, have some people within the organization that are very, very analytical, especially my scientists and my engineers. And and you have to make sure that that we're cutting the data the right way. And they were like, okay, can we look at it this way? Can we look at it that way? And after we would cut it, you know, multiple times for them to feel comfortable, then they were able to sit with it. And at that point, we were able to, to make it actionable because data by in and of itself doesn't do anything unless it connects with the people in terms of where they are. Mm-hmm. And I realized that as we use the data, as we use the insights, how I approached it and discussed it with R&D was very different with how I discussed it and processed it with my commercial organization or with my operations team. And so you had to meet people where they were were and and make sure you spoke their language and that the data was giving enough information to connect with them in in their journey. Interesting. We'll take one final break from our conversation with Julie Tyre to bring back our sponsor, Resonetics. Once again, I'm speaking with Bob Beldino. He is Director of Strategic Projects at Resonetics. Bob, you were talking earlier about Lightspeed Labs. Can you give us a little more information and what is your role at Lightspeed Labs? 
I am the director of strategic projects for the Lightspeed Lab in Resonetics. And what that means basically is that, you know, I've, I've been on the Lightspeed Lab for over 10 years. I know the technologies very well. I know a lot of our engineers very well. And I am kind of the front line on brand new complicated programs. Think sub-assemblies, think, you know, unusual laser cutting paths or something that's really a, a technical challenge, right? So my role is to connect with the many other engineering managers, the other engineers on the Lightspeed team from any kind of different technical background, right? We do laser processing, we do night melt processing, we have semi-finished materials like precision stainless steel, platinum iridium tubing, night melt wire, things like that. Uh, we, you know, we have a tremendous metal fabrication team with all kinds of different capabilities, centerless grinding, photochem photochemical uh, machining and CNC machining. And we also have sensors and batteries that we can that we can sell off the shelf or even make custom. So when I see sub-assemblies come to Resonetics and all of a sudden, we've got all these engineers and facilities that can work together to put each piece of the puzzle together and make a you know tremendous subassembly. I get really excited because we can really take all of our tools and use them all at once instead of just leveraging our independent technologies. And finally, Bob, these are interesting times in medical devices. How do you see the industry changing? What's what's coming up in the future? Well, first of all, the way the industry communicates, I see that changing and moving uh, even more digital, right? I mean, the last couple of years have already been pretty digital with how we interact with the internet, but Resonetics is investing a lot in our in our website and how we can get, uh, how we reach out to customers and how they reach out to us. We've got a connect with an expert tool on our website. It could be me, it could be any of our engineers on the Lightspeed team. And you know what that tool does is it filters down your, you know, what you're looking for. It's only a couple questions. You can, you know, get dialed right into laser cut tubing or maybe centerless grinding. And you can actually submit the content that you need for a quote into this tool and it'll get you in touch with that um, corresponding technical expert at ResNX. Another thing I see in the industry is, you know, we're always getting pressure, medical device companies are, to reduce their size, their footprint in the body. You know, the, the wall thicknesses are getting thinner and thinner. Well, the technologies and acquisitions that Resonetics has continued to build around all focus on small size, tight tolerance, miniaturization of devices. So I think really we're in a great spot to help grow with the industry. All right. Well, thanks so much, Bob Baldino, for the time and the thoughts. Thanks, of course, to Resonetics for sponsoring this episode of Abbott Talks. If you'd like more information about Resonetics, go to Resonetics.com. Before we move forward, I just want to go back two clicks. The, the move to Abbott Diabetes, that feels like it was intentional, like they wanted you to be separate so they could bring you back? Or do you think it was serendipitous? Um, you know, now I think it was serendipitous. Okay. I, I think at the time, um, there was always discussions. And one of the things I love about Abbott is they have a very robust development plan, growth plan process, career development process. So we have been talking for various years about, you know, my ultimate role. That goal was to be a, a, a president. And and doing a really nice job. And, and, and I think not only do you take the, the, the guidance of your leaders, but you also have to own your development as well. And mm -hmm. so I'm a big proponent of, of, of doing an assessment of my capabilities, having my boss do that step up as well. And then we all kind of do an assessment to say, where does she have proficiency? Where does she have gaps? So we had gotten to a place where everyone was comfortable with, yep, we believe that you're ready for this next job as the president. The problem was there was nothing available. Mm. And so the person who was in the role before, he was preparing me uh, for that time, but he wasn't necessarily ready to step away. So the decision was, 
Uh, our diabetes care business, it create, you know, it, it gives us the most growth within the organization. And Julie, we need your expertise because if you look at diabetes care, it's a combination of med device as well as pharma. And I had done both. Mm, and point. we were in a process of expanding our U.S. Uh, commercial organization. And they needed someone like me to come in, build the sales force, identify new sales leaders. And so they moved me over for a specific purpose because they said, you know what, we know that your next role would be to take this job, but we don't know when the person's going to retire. So we believe your talents would be best used moving you over. Okay. And during the pandemic, my old boss made a decision. He's like, you know what, I'm at a point in my life where I've been around for over, you know, almost close to 40 years in bad device. And he wanted to take a step back and, and spend some time with his family. He wasn't preparing. He wasn't really thinking about that at the time. Gotcha. And so it created a dynamic where like, Sorry, I know Julie's gone, but I'm ready to retire. But I think ultimately it was, it for me, I think it was better for me to leave and come back because it did give me a different perspective. So if you're a senior person who's being, who's been transferred to another, or sent to another business, don't think you're being prepared to take over the business you've been with for a very long time. That's right. It's not that common. That's not, yes. Okay. Sorry. All right. I don't want to raise any hopes. So let's, let's uh, introduce folks to what Abbott, Va Abbott's vascular business looked like after this assessment, where were you focused? Where were your products focused? And then we'll move into where you're headed. Perfect. So, you know, when people think about the vascular business, it's, it really was founded on the back of our drug loading stint business, our Zions business. And so for many, many years, if you if you said uh, the vascular business, Abbott Vascular, that's what you thought. You thought Zions. And Zions has, you know, fared extremely well for us over the years. Globally, we are a, a global leader. The reality is, I mean, for anyone who's in med device, you know that the stint business has become more of a com commodity over the years. Mm -hmm. And so it's not giving us the growth that we needed. So if you looked at the business at the time, I think there was this realization that there had to be a movement in other areas, but I don't think it had been solidified in a way in terms of, okay, what areas and how we get there. And so a lot of our large portion of our business and our revenue was still coming from drug loading stints. And, and, and there was a concentration of, of revenue that was in key markets versus having a, a robust contribution across all of our various markets. So me coming in, what we realized was one, we can't walk away from our drug loading stint business. Mm -hmm. So it's not walking away from, it is expanding beyond. Uh, because our drug loading stint business, although is contracting because of just ASPs, uh, we were still doing quite well from a share perspective, and it gives us a lot of a, quite a bit of margin. So, so one of the assessments I made was, guys, okay, we cannot walk away from that business. Mm -hmm. What do we do to complement that business? So we we had an endovascular business, and we've had an endovascular business for a while, but I don't think it had the appropriate level of focus, and there was not a connectivity across all of our products. And so what you see with vascular today and moving forward is a shift away from a product focus, primarily drug loading stents, to one that now is a holistic uh, kind of integrated portfolio of products that tie together. And what I mean by that is if you take a look at uh, our stents, obviously you need to have a guide wire balloon to access it. But again, that's primarily on the coronary side. But we took a step further and we were complementing that with imaging and physiology. So a number of years ago, uh, Abbott had the 
the St. Jude integration. And as part of that integration, uh, the Vasker business was able to acquire and, and integrate into the business OCT, which is optical, uh, uh, opt optical uh, tomography, optical coherence tomography, which is basically uh, a, a, a 3D view inside of the vessel versus you know normal angiography is is a two is a two D view outside and so that really wasn't necessarily being focused on as much as it should and it wasn't being focused on how it connects with the overall case so we started to really optimize our our, our imaging business also on the physiology side it helps you to assess the magnitude of the disease uh, should you even put a stent in this patient so what we did was now what we look at is instead of our our organization focus is focusing on a customer I want you to buy a Zion stent mm -hmm. or I want you to use uh, imaging what we do now is we go in and our overall prop value proposition is the totality of the offering across the entire patient continuum so as a patient is laying there on the table uh, now Vascor has the ability to make sure that we uh, uh, access the vessel with our guide wires and accessories. But now we have the ability to do an assessment of mm -hmm. the magnitude of the disease. And so with aging population, um, high you know, uh, percentages of people with diabetes care or diabetes, people who smoke, what you see is people have calcified lesions. And so what OCT does with, with our Ultrion technology, it allows the physician with kind of a, a pullback to determine the magnitude, not only the magnitude, but the morphology of the vessel. Is there calcium? Where is the calcium? The length of the, of, of the lesion, if you will. So it gives that physician a lot of insights. And then once you have those insights, now with the acquisition of CSI that gives us vessel preparation where we had a gap before, mm -hmm. now we've identified where we have calcium. Now it gives us the opportunity to impact that calcium today with um, uh, orbital atherectomy and in the future with IVL. And then you get to our historic value proposition was treatment. Now, doctor, if you need a stent, because now you know the magnitude of the disease, you've, you've prepped the vessel, and now with the insights from OCT, you know exactly where to put the, the, the stent. Mm -hmm. And then on the back end of that, uh, if you need to close that vessel, we have vessel closure. So our value proposition is much different, where we move from a product to a robust portfolio that meets the needs of the patient across the entire care continuum, and it meets the needs of the physician within that case. Mm -hmm. It also gives us greater leverage from a contracting perspective because, uh, you know, IDNs and large hospital groups want to partner with organizations that give them more of a holistic package. And we've created that value proposition not only for the coronary side, but also on the peripheral side. And so once again, you know, we have products that access the peripheral, um, um, you know, part of, of, of the of the body. Uh, we don't necessarily have insights today with imaging on peripheral, but something that we are, are exploring and looking at. Um, but we do have the ability to, uh, to, to treat the, the calcium or the lesion and then have the ability to stint that today within the upper part of the leg, mm -hmm. the, uh, the, with, with the SFA with Sapira, uh, 
But shortly, hopefully next year, we'll have the opportunity to do that below the knee with a new offering that we're going to be coming out with called uh, Esprit BTK, which will be a bioabsorbable scaffold below the knee where you, you need the opportunity to open up the vessel to allow for healing, but you don't want to necessarily put a permanent scaffold there. You want, so it gives you the best of both worlds. You open up the vessel, you get flow for healing to prevent amputations, but these patients are very sick. And if you need to come in and, re and have reintervention, you don't have a permanent uh, cage there. So that will be coming out next year. And then you have the ability to close as well. So now, uh, when I have conversations with our key customers, mm -hmm. we're talking about the totality of our portfolio and how it ties together versus just one or two products that were great products, by the way. So they were best in class products, but that's a different discussion and a different, a different value proposition. Now, was that feedback that you heard from your surgeon customers that you interviewed that you needed to offer me more? Uh, where did, I mean, it makes perfect sense what sure. you're aligning, but I'm just wondering, was that something that you... They did. They said they had holes. Okay. They did. They said mm -hmm. they had holes. Also, the job that I had at Vascular prior to moving over to diabetes care, I led our global strategic marketing organization, so I was responsible for strategy, upstream um, strategy, um, and, and, and development as well. So many of these items were things that I was aware of in that job, mm -hmm. that, but we further were able to really focus in on key areas of movement. One, we recognize that we had a gap within thrombectomy, and, and we know that that's an area of growth, and that's an area where we didn't have a play. And what was, was, was loud for us was that we didn't have anything within the vessel preparation world. And that was a huge gap for us as well, not only today with atherectomy, but moving forward mm -hmm. uh, as, we look at, uh, as, as we look at IVL. And so a lot of those things were... Uh, as a result of what physicians were sharing with us. And, 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 and so I'm sharing with you what we have in the pipeline today, on the portfolio today. We also have a number of pipeline programs that we're working on or we're pulling together as a result of that feedback as well. So this is where we are today, and we'll continue to build on that and evolve over time. So, so I want to talk about the acquisitions in a moment, but I'd love to understand how you prepare an organization for this sort of growth. Um, the different departments, R&D and sales. What, what what changes do you have to make to R&D? Are you bringing in new engineers? Are you just do you sort of realigning responsibilities for the existing ones? What what happens internally? Sure. So w the first thing that we had to do was work very closely, not only with the R&D leaders, but also with our HR partners, mm -hmm. because we identified where we had some gaps in capabilities. For example, you know. We have been an organization that has been, you know, been experts in catheter design and instant design, but within the, the 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 OCT or imaging platform that I mentioned, we actually have artificial intelligence that's embedded in it. And so we had to go out and make sure that we had best-in-class software engineers. And so we have to now recruit much differently, organize the teams much differently, uh, even compensation incentives have to be done much differently. And so what we see now is that, uh, and again, for us, remember, we, we're not walking away from our historic business. And so what you see today is you see our, our R&D organization has different teams and components and pods within it. So I have organization today that has, again, that, that, that guide wire, catheter design expertise, but then I have uh, software engineering that's, that's very new to us. And then with the acquisition of CSI, I have a number of people that, as well as with our the, the hardware that's required 
for uh, the, 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 the Jedi, which is thrown back to me, I have mechanical engineers. And mm. so what you saw there is just a completely different approach to our R&D organization and a, a new leader that had the ability uh, to manage all those key components where you have scientists who deal with drug, you have people who understand catheter design, you have people who understand how to pull together mechanics, and then you have people that have the ability to do uh, software. So we had to completely recruit differently. We had to have new processes. Um, and then we had to be structured differently, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. We had to evaluate different milestones because the, the milestones that you use, you know, on the uh, on the catheter design are going to be different from the ones that you use on the software design, and that flowed through the entire organization. So even from a regulatory perspective, um, you know, again, we are experts in bringing new products to the market uh, historically, like guys wire stents and balloons. Sure, but. As you talk about artificial intelligence, as you talk about machine learning, the level of data that the FDA would like to see, it changes, right? So even from a regulatory perspective, we had to uh, initially bring in consultants to help us and to guide us to figure out how we navigate through some of these uh, uh, new uh, kind of drug introductions or new product introductions with the FDA in a much different way. Even on our clinical sites, how, how we do clinical design for our clinical trials has to be completely different. Um, and not only in terms of the products, but even in terms of our approach. So we made a decision that for our clinical trials and all of our products that we wanted to make sure that the people who needed the products most we're going to be in the in the in the in the in the clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And so historically, when you take a look at clinical trials, you've had very large portions of those clinical trials have been with men and men in a, in a, in, a, in a certain population. Uh, when you take a look at, for example, I'm using an example, uh, PAD, uh, you see large portions of people that have PAD and amputations are in underserved populations, Native Americans, Hispanics, African Americans, but you have very small portions of those po uh, people in trials. So we even made a decision to expand that and, and make sure that we included more of those patients. To do that, we had to go to different sites. We went to sites that... Uh, we had, had not historically gone to. We helped them get up, up to speed on how to be a clinical uh, site. Mm -hmm. we, we provided translation information or material for the site. We provided a lot of training and assessment. We created websites for the sites as well as their patients uh, so they understood the importance of participating in a clinical trial. So it's been a, a lot of change within the organization. Um, it's heavy lifting, but it's also energizing mm -hmm. because the organization is now seeing that momentum. They're seeing how the organization is changing, how we're moving, how we're addressing the needs of patients in a more broad way. And we're bringing more people into the tent that actually need the benefit of our technologies. It's amazing. So lots of internal changes in this sort of realignment and redirection. You've mentioned a few times the acquisition of, of CSI cardiovascular systems. How did that become a target? Did you go out and say, we need something that does this? Let's look at all the companies that do this. Or did you know, like, that's the piece we need right there? What, what did that look like? Yeah, we knew that we needed uh, something for vessel preparation. Mm -hmm. So we knew that we needed that not only for our imaging business, our OCT business, but we also needed that for as a complement to our uh, peripheral business. And so let me tell you why. So 
as I mentioned with OCT, OCT gives you data, it gives you imaging, it tells you what's going on in the vessel. But we didn't have anything to impact. If you identify calcium, I had no way uh, to, uh, to remove it from the vessel, right? So that was going to be a huge gap for, for me as a, you know, as, as a business leader. So I knew I needed vessel preparation on that side. I also knew with the upcoming launch of Esprit BTK that you have a similar dynamic. And so when you take a look at uh, you know, CLTLI uh, below the knee, this chronic limb ischemia, that many of those patients also have a lot of calcium. And I had no way uh, to prep the vessel. And we knew, based upon our history years ago, we brought out Absorb, which is a bioabsorbable technology that we used at the time in the coronaries. And we decided that the application wasn't necessarily the best fit at the time within the heart because you had best-in-class stents that gave you really good outcomes. Mm -hmm. We don't have that same type of best-in-class product below the knee. Uh, Plano balloon angioplasty, just taking a balloon up and elevating it and, and pumping it up to, to give you some sort of you know, increase in the vessel size to give blood flow, but it's, it's, it's not durable. So we knew that taking that bioabsorbable technology was going to be more applicable below the knee, but we also had learnings from the coronary that you have to prep the vessel, that you had to make sure that you removed any calcium that's in the vessel because it, the, the scaffold wouldn't oppose to the vessel appropriately. So we knew we needed to have something there. So that's why I was on the lookout for a vessel preparation product. Mm -hmm. We looked at cardiovascular systems and we looked at a number of other products and we, we realized that that CSI gave us not only the best product on the market today from a, um, you know, just from an, uh, an orbital atherectomy perspective, but we also liked some of the pipeline products and we liked the people. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't just an acquisition of the product, it was also the people. And, and why, why I say the people is they were very aligned to our mission of being very patient-centric. And mm -hmm. so you have people within that organization, and we brought over just a number of fantastic people within, you know, regulatory, within R&D across the entire organization that, sh that had that same mission mm -hmm. and vision of, of making sure we put the patient at the center and were able to uh, address address the totality of the patient's needs. So we felt like it was a good fit, portfolio today, pipeline in the future, but also people and vision and mission. Do you, when you're, when you're integrating a company like that, your, your company, Abbott's Vascular Business had just gone through its, its changes, and then you're bringing in this new entity that, that was sizable of its own. Do you anticipate the, the end product will be a combination of the two, probably more heavily Abbott, but strong influences cardiovascular CSI, or do you think, do you see the CSI people kind of fitting into the, the mode, mold you've already created at that point? What, what's the Yeah, so it's like? interesting. I would say the majority of the integration on, from the people perspective, um, you know, we had sizable people, a sizable amount of people on the R&D side. Uh, obviously, they, they have their own uh, operations that, that now have integrated into our business, but they'll continue to have their standalone manufacturing plants. But the largest portion of the integration was with the sales organization, the sales okay. team. Just last week, I was in Dallas and, and, and had the opportunity to address this new combined sales organization. So to answer your question, what I said to them is, it's a new organization. 
And I don't want the my legacy CSI people to feel like they are now being dropped into the Abbott way and that, and, and that you have to then, you know, kind of comply. What I said was, it's now a new organization and that we're stronger together. Mm -hmm. And I want the best of both worlds. We were very intentional of getting the best people uh, as we evaluated who to bring over. We, we got the best folks on the vascular side. We got the best people on the CSI side. So I didn't just prefer and have preference for the vascular people. I did a whole assessment working with a third party consultant to make sure I was able to assess ta uh, talent, uh, to align key metrics, and then figure out the best people uh, to go into a given territory. Because um, the reality is, I, I need both of those portfolios to come together because they're synergistic. So I mm -hmm. couldn't just take the Abbott people and then drop the CSI people in. I needed to make sure I had the expertise on the other side. So especially for the, the, the organization within sales, it's a new organization. It's, 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 it's completely new. I also shared with many of the, the individuals on, let's say, R&D. I said, I want you guys to integrate but not assimilate. And what I mean by that is I want you and I expect you to bring fresh new ideas, new perspectives, because that's how we get better. Because sometimes I think you get so focused on the way you do things that you lose sight and you, you lose sight of the opportunities that are, that are out there and you don't see what's in the corners. And I expect for them to come in and enhance our, our current culture. My husband and I talk about this a, a lot in terms of are people a good cultural fit? You have to look at that. But I also look to see if people are a good cultural addition mm -hmm. because we should be better as a result of the integration of these new individuals in the portfolio coming in. How do you share that philosophy with, uh, with, the, with the, your employees? Do, do they follow your lead in this regard? Because I think it's common for someone when someone's acquiring someone else to say, yes. now you do things our way. How do you have them open up as well and to see that they're going to, and the end result will be a stronger combined organization. Sure. So I'm very intentional on making sure from day one that we pull them in. So on my senior staff meetings, I bring them in, they have a seat at the table. And now I say, guys, this is one organization mm -hmm. and there is not an A team or B team here. Uh, everyone is on equal footing. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you've been here for 15 years or whether you're brand new uh, after two months, you're part of the, of the, of this team. And so I, I invite them in. I, I probably go overboard to make sure that I get their thoughts, I get their perspectives, I allow them to share uh, their experiences within uh, the, the legacy business as well as their experience within the, the marketplace. I also am intentional externally to the broader organization. So I had an all-employee meeting here a few weeks ago and half of the people, and the way I do it is similar to this, is, is I have uh, discussions with various groups around our key priorities. And so half of the people that spoke during the, uh, the, the, the all-employee meeting were people that came from the legacy CSI organization. Hmm. And, so, and so now people can see, you send a signal that that people can see uh, individuals uh, sitting there that are now part of the organization. And so I think it sends a strong message that, that we're not asking you to come in the organization and sit still and be quiet. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're looking for you immediately to come in and, and make, uh, make a contribution. And I invite them to, to give an opposing view as well and, and to say, you know, I know you guys have historically done it this way. Um, I, I'm looking at it a little bit different. And it, it gives us the opportunity to discuss and debate that. And usually what happens is you get something much better than the two individual, you know, strategies uh, uh, originally. And so we definitely have to make sure that one plus one equals five. And 
this situation. And so uh, I think you have to be intentional in inviting people in, making sure it's very visible within the organization. Just recently, you know, we have an annual giving campaign and we have a, a chair and a co-chair. I made sure that one of the chairs was from that legacy mm-hmm. uh, CSR organization. So people immediately see them fully integrated into the organization. Really interesting. I could talk about this all day. Well, it's, we're, you've been very generous for your time. Two more questions. Uh, if we go into your office and you have a, a, a chart of some kind on the wall showing where you are in this transition plan, are, is the line complete? Are you where you need to go? Or are you only a third of the way there? Like what? What is? Yeah, not complete. I would say I would say a third of the way there is probably okay. That's probably that's probably fair. That's probably fair. So you know we're excited about the progress that we're making. We're excited about momentum, but we're not done. We have a lot more that we're focused on um, right now. My biggest focus is the integration of the sales organization in the U.S. OUS, what we had, we had uh, CSI didn't have a big OUS uh, footprint. Um, the majority of the revenue was US based. And so now I'm looking to expand our focus outside the US. They use distributors. So we're identifying where it makes sense to continue to keep distributors. We're evaluating where it makes sense to fold that in and launch many of those products uh, so that we have the totality of the portfolio outside the US. So that's, that's one of the key pieces. The other piece is we have a number of products and clinical trials in the pipeline that we need to get out. Mm-hmm. And once that happens, we will be complete based upon where we are today, but you're never complete, <laughs> right? It never ends. I think you have to constantly be in this mode of, of how do you build on, not I'll, I'll always change, but how do you build on your strategy? So we look at our strategy over, let's say, multiples of kind of five years. You don't want to completely, you know, disrupt that, but you do have to assess every year, are your assumptions correct? Are there mild modifications that you need to, to, to make to enhance or to shore up the strategy or to address any threats that you potentially may have? No, great. Final question. So the, the final two thirds, uh, you know, this is the annoying five-year question. Where do you see Abbott? Abbott's vascular business in in five years, and and is it going to be drastically different than what we might see today? We're seeing so much new tech kind of come into medical devices. Uh, We're seeing so many, CSI sounds like a a perfect conventional fit. I'm excited to see whether we're going to see some unconventional acquisitions that might be like, whoa, that's, that, I didn't see it coming, but that makes perfect sense. What does Abbott vascular look like in five years from now? So I think where we look like in five years, so I talked to you about this patient care continuum. Um, For many years, you know, the focus, and not just for Abbott, but, you know, many of our our people in the market focus on the point of the intervention, right? When the patient's actually laying on the table. And what I'm trying, and so right now, we're trying to shore that up to make sure that we have everything that the patient needs, everything that the physician needs. Where I'd like to go moving forward, Forward is to address what the patient needs prior to the cath lab mm-hmm. and to address the patient needs post the cath lab. Oh, okay. So so I think the post the cath lab is probably going to be a little bit easier in terms of utilizing all of the data that we get, um, you know, from the data lakes, particularly for from our imaging perspective. How do you take all this data and how do you triangulate it in a way to make sure that post intervention that patients have the best outcomes? 
And then from there also, I would love to be able to have some sort of predictive modeling in terms of how do you better predict patients that are going to benefit most from the technology. And even further than that, if you go upstream, is there a predictive model that we can then use that involves all of Abbott's businesses? Because remember, we have diabetes care, we have heart failure, we have neuromodulation, we have nutrition. How do we do a much better job? And this may sound different from a president of a med device business, but how do we create a dynamic where we actually can make people a lot healthier mm -hmm. on the front end that they may not necessarily need my devices, if you will. So you're moving from a, a vascular device company to a vascular health company. You're yes. promoting them. Promoting health, yes. Sounds like a great mission. Great, yeah. thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you so much for the invitation, I appreciate it. Well, as we'll wrap up this episode, once again, this is Tom Salome of Device Talks. Please do us a favor, if you would, share this episode of the Abbott Talks podcast on social media. And when you do, tag myself, tag Device Talks, tag Abbott. Be great to be part of that conversation. Also, please, if you would, subscribe to the Device Talks podcast network so you don't miss a future episode of Abbott Talks and our other great medical device podcasts including the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Finally, I'd very much appreciate it if you would connect with me on LinkedIn directly. You can follow me or connect with me. I love to connect with folks and uh, be part of your future MedTech conversations. All right, folks, thanks for joining us on this episode of Abbott Talks. We'll have another great episode coming to you very soon. 